Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 23rd, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the eternal enemy of the Jew. And thank you for listening. Before I begin, I would like to say that in answer to recent heretics who have divided themselves into a new sect, which we will describe as materialist identity, or perhaps prosperity identity, and who have even accused us of having no faith, because we refuse to believe in their dreams, or in their so-called law of attraction. If John Kennedy were a pastor rather than a president, he may have said, Ask not what God can do for you. Ask what you can do for your people. And that would be a fair assessment of Yahshua Christ's own instructions to his disciples. John chapter 14, perhaps. Before you can criticize the faith of others, you must consider this. What have you ever really done on behalf of your people and not on behalf of yourselves? What are your aspirations for your people? And do you put them ahead of your aspirations for yourself? Faith, the scriptural faith, is not a belief that Yahweh God will do what you want him to do for you. Faith is believing that Yahweh is and that he can do what he said that he would do for us, if indeed we are his children. Yahweh is a rewarder of those who seek him, not of those who seek riches. And he does not necessarily reward those who seek him with material riches. Every good gift comes from God, but mansions on the beach at Destin, and automobiles, or getting your brakes fixed, are not listed amongst the gifts of the Spirit and neither is money. Furthermore, none of the prophets of Yahweh had prophesied anything for their own enrichment, for things that Yahweh may do for them. Only the false prophets did that. Rather, the prophets of God prophesied concerning what things he would do for the children of Israel. Ryan Brennan, Michael Brandenburg, you have turned away from Yahweh, and you have turned to seek after mammon. We will never follow along with what you clowns call faith. I just wonder if Birkenstock makes their own clown shoes. Christianity in the Old Testament, Part 3. This is a continuing presentation of Bertrand Compare's sermon with our own commentary. In the portions of this sermon which we have already presented, Bertrand Compare addressed some of the logical fallacies which are held by those who somehow think that the Old Testament and the New are separate books addressed to different groups of people. Then he presented some of the prophecies which should prove beyond doubt that the New Covenant was to be made with the same people who were at one time 
subject to the Old Covenant. In this context, he then discussed Genesis 3.15, Genesis 4 verse 1, and the sacrifices of Cain and Abel described subsequently in Genesis chapter 4. From there he cited the book of Job and a Christian profession made by Job himself concerning his Redeemer and his resurrection. An obvious reference to Yahshua Christ. While we could not agree with some of Compare's assertions concerning the meaning of Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 or the age of the book of Job, his elucidation of the Christian promises in these passages of scripture are certainly correct. Now as we proceed with Compare's sermon, he continues by discussing a rather controversial topic which is the call to Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. There are many people who protest the connection of the Old Testament to our Aryan race for reason of the accounts of human sacrifice which it contains and especially for the near sacrifice by Abraham of his own son Isaac. We would assert that these people, including men who are supposed history experts such as David Duke, these people are highly illiterate, including David Duke. The following paragraph is from a presentation of Clifton Emmeheiser's paper, Born Under Contract, which I made here in June of 2016. I was addressing neo-pagans specifically. However, the criticism applies just as well to so-called traditional Christians who also cast aspersions on the Old Testament. And I said that many of the neo-pagans who despise Christianity use Abraham's offering of Isaac as an excuse. Yet the same neo-pagans would extol the virtues of their pagan gods, or properly, their pagan idols. They are ignorant of their own pagan traditions. In the Greek epic and tragic poets, there is a popular account that Agamemnon, the great king of the Greeks, had sacrificed his own daughter Iphigenia whom he sent for under the pretext of a promise of marriage to Achilles. When she showed up, he placed her on an altar and sacrificed her to Artemis in exchange for the hope of having fair winds for the voyage to Troy so that the Greeks could launch their attack against the city. The Eddas of Snorri also include references to human sacrifice such as that of the Swedish king who sacrificed nine of his sons to Odin in an agreement to prolong his own life, which is a story found in the Inglinga saga. Here we will add that in all of the ancient accounts of the sacrifice of Iphigenia, or I would actually pronounce her name Iphigenia, in the sacrifice of Iphigenia by Agamemnon, even if Agamemnon was hated by his wife, 
Clutomestra for that act, and she later killed him, two things are nevertheless consistent, which are the facts that Agamemnon's fellows approved of the matter, that's how they were portrayed, since it was to their benefit, and that the gods also approved of it, blessing Agamemnon by granting him his wishes for fair weather and smooth sailing. So the ancient Greeks, and we find that the worship of Artemis runs well into the Christian era, as it's mentioned under the worship of Diana in the book of Acts, so the ancient Greeks worshipped gods, which approved of and accepted human sacrifice. And that is true even if we want to accept the later revisions by some of the epic and tragic poets, which claimed that Artemis swept up Iphigenia and put an animal in her place, whisking the young lady off to some faraway temple in Aulis. In fact, we can see clear similarities between the biblical account of Isaac recorded in the biblical literature in the 15th century BC and the sacrifice of Iphigenia recorded in the Greek poets over 800 years later. Making this presentation, I should probably more precisely say over 700 years later, I'm sorry. Making this presentation we proceeded by describing another instance of human sacrifice in Aryan literature and saying that there are many instances of human sacrifice in certain of the Germanic Eddas, but this one is probably, so far as I have seen, the most prolific. This is from the Heimskringla, or the Chronicle of the Kings of Norway. The Yinglinga Saga, or the story of the Yingling family. They make beer now in Pennsylvania, right? I'm just kidding. The story of the Yingling family from Odin to Halfdan the Black, who wasn't really black. He probably had dark hair, or perhaps he was of a cruel nature. And this paragraph is titled, Of King On. Joran's son. An, or Ain, was the name of Joran's son, who became the king of the Swedes after his father. He was a wise man who made great sacrifices to the gods, but being no warrior, he lived quietly at home. In the time when the kings we have been speaking of were in Upsal, or Uppsala, right, in Denmark, and had been ruled over by Dan Michalate, who lived to a very great age, then by his son Froda Michalate, or the peace-loving, who was succeeded by his sons Halfdan and Friedleif, who were great warriors. Halfdan was older than his brother, and above him in all things. He went with his army against King On to Sweden, and was always victorious. At last, King On fled to western Gotland, when he had been king in Uppsala about twenty-five years, and was in Gotland twenty-five years, while Halfdan remained king in Uppsala. King Halfdan died in his bed at Uppsala, and he was buried there in a mound, 
and King Henri turned to Upsal when he was sixty years of age. He made a great sacrifice and in it offered up his son to Odin. On got an answer from Odin that he should live sixty years longer. So he was rewarded for offering his son and completing the sacrifice. And he was afterwards king in Uppsala for twenty-five years. Now came Ole the Bold, a son of King Friedlif with his army to Sweden against King On. And they had several battles with each other, but Ole was always the victor. Then On fled a second time to Gotland, and for twenty-five years Ole, or perhaps it's Ola, reigned in Uppsala until he was killed by Starkad, the old. After Ol's fall, on return to Uppsala and ruled the kingdom for twenty-five years. Then he made a great sacrifice again for a long life, in which he sacrificed his second son, and received the answer from Odin, that he should live as long as he gave him one of his sons every tenth year, and also that he should name one of the districts of his country after the number of sons he should offer to Odin. When he had sacrificed the seventh of his sons he continued to live, but so that he could not walk but was carried on a chair. Then he sacrificed his eighth son and lived thereafter ten years lying in his bed. Now he sacrificed his ninth son and lived ten years more but so that he drank out of a horn like a weaned infant. He had now only one son remaining, whom he also wanted to sacrifice, and to give Odin Upsal and the domains thereunto belonging under the name of the Ten Lands. But the Swedes would not allow it, so there was no sacrifice, and King On died and was buried in a mound at Upsal. Since that time, it is called on sickness when a man dies without pain of extreme old age. Theodolf tells of this. In Upsal's town, the cruel king slaughtered his sons at Odin's shrine, slaughtered his sons with cruel knife to get from Odin length of life. He lived until he had to turn his toothless mouth to the deer's horn, and he he who shed his children's blood sucked through the oxen's horn his food. At length fell death has tracked him down, slowly but sure, in Upsal's town. Now, even though this king On is remembered in the Edda as a cruel man, he's also called a wise man. And the account nevertheless portrays Odin, the greatest of the Germanic gods, not only as approving of the king's sacrifice of his own sons and rewarding him for it, but also promising him to reward him, also promising to reward him again and again if he continued to sacrifice all of his remaining sons. Therefore we see that from their own literature
which they often cite and which they claim to be holy. Germanic pagans worship a god who continually approves of human sacrifice. You damned hypocrites. Even more condemning, and, and clowns like David Duke claim that the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham is Jewish in its nature. What a clown. Even more condemning, the pagan kings of the Greeks and Swedes, which we, which we have just seen depicted in their own pagan literature, had sacrificed their own children for their own personal gain and lust for riches or power. But on the contrary, Abraham was tested by Yahweh his God to sacrifice his own son as a sign of his obedience. Abraham had nothing to gain, and because he was promised to be the heir of the world through that son, he had everything to lose by his sacrifice. Absolutely contrary to the greedy Swede and to the greed of Agamemnon, Abraham had nothing to gain to his sacrifice and everything to lose. Who's the Jew? Who's acting like a Jew? And the act demonstrates not only the obedience of Abraham to his God, but also the obedience of Isaac to his father. Because, as we shall see, Isaac was not a little child when he was sacrificed which the denominational churches like to depict. It's certainly not true. Another aspect of the biblical account, which is also quite contrary to the pagan acts of human sacrifice, is that it implies from the beginning that Isaac was never actually going to be sacrificed. There were already promises to Abraham that his heir would come from his own loins through his wife Sarah. Sarah was extremely advanced in her years when Isaac was born, and by the time of the sacrifice she was far older. But the intention of Yahweh for Isaac was already expressed before he was born, where we read in Genesis chapter 17. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. Isaac had not yet had children when the sacrifice was demanded. Again, in Genesis chapter 21, where Sarah wanted Abraham to separate from Ishmael. We read where Yahweh tells him to hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Abraham had nothing to gain by his sacrifice of Isaac and everything to lose. How is that Jewish? That is the absolute opposite of the Jewish mentality. It was not until after this this promise that Abraham was tested and commanded to sacrifice his son. Having these promises, Abraham had no choice but to demonstrate 
his trust in the God who had made those earlier promises. Today, Americans, denominational Christians, who actually worship Jews rather than Jesus, they send their sons off to be sacrificed on the battlefields of those Jews, on the battlefields of their gods, every day. There aren't, we don't have an army loaded with Jews overseas. We have an army loaded with mostly white Christians overseas. They worship Jews and they send their sons into battle, sacrificing them for their gods every day. And they have nothing to gain by it, just like Abraham. There are other aspects of the sacrifice of Isaac, which can, now, which can only be understood in the historical context of antiquity. Surrounding nations sacrifice sons and daughters to their pagan gods quite frequently. And this is evident in scripture as well as in history and in the records of antiquity contained in surviving inscriptions. Ancient Greeks, Etruscans, and Gauls, as well as Aryan peoples as far east as modern China, all engaged in human sacrifice at one time or another. So we cannot imagine that Abraham was not familiar with human sacrifice before he was commanded to sacrifice his own son by Yahweh. One further aspect is of extreme ceremonial and legal importance. First, in the ancient world, fathers had property rights over their wives and their children. So Abraham had every right to consign his son to his God. Next, it is evident throughout ancient literature, and especially that of the Greeks, just read the tragic poets, that when a man placed something on an altar and dedicated it to a god, the object became the property of that god. So when Abraham placed his son on the altar and dedicated him to Yahweh, he essentially handed ownership of his son over to his god. So according to the customs of the period, Yahweh Taking what we may consider a legal possession of Isaac, he intended to preserve him. He substituted a more appropriate sacrifice in his place, and he proceeded to fulfill the promises which he had already made to Abraham concerning him. So we see that the biblical account is just, that the God of the Bible is righteous and that the pagans and others who scoff at the event are absolutely ignorant because their own gods demanded human sacrifice for far more trivial purposes. Now, with that background, we shall continue with our presentation and critical review of Christianity in the Old Testament by Bertrand Compare. This was digitized from Your Heritage and prepared with critical notes by Clifton Emmeheiser. Your Heritage was a collection of Bertrand Compare sermons, which were transcribed from audio tapes by Gene Snyder and made available through Kingdom Identity Ministries.
Until her death, Jean was a longtime friend and correspondent of mine throughout my prison years, from 1999, I would guess, through 2007. She died in December of that year. Mike Hallimore now has it available, I'm sorry, that may have been December of 2006, I believe. I'm quite certain now, as I remember. Mike Hallimore now has it available under the title The Complete Works of Bertrand L. Compare at Kingdom Identity Ministries. Compare had a booklet under the same title, Your Heritage, which should not be confused. Perhaps that's why Hallimore changed the title of the book, as he appeared to do. I have a copy of it here that I've had probably since 1999. So continuing with Bertrand Compare, Abraham also knew and expressed some of the basic ideas of Christianity. In Genesis chapter 22, we read that Yahweh put Abraham to a severe test. He told Abraham to offer his beloved son Isaac on the altar as a burnt offering. Remember how much Isaac meant to Abraham. In addition to all the ordinary love of a father for his son, Yahweh had promised Abraham that the many great prophecies given to him would be fulfilled through Isaac. We would call them promises as well as prophecies. Then when Isaac was still only a child, and I will argue with that in a moment, and none of the promises had yet been fulfilled, Yahweh suddenly commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. Did it mean that Yahweh had changed his mind and would not make good on his many promises? No. Abraham knew that Yahweh's word was always reliable. Therefore, Yahweh would find a way to fulfill his promises that through Isaac would be born a number of nations destined to demonstrate to the world the goodness of Yahweh. Now, actually, Isaac must have been a little older than childhood, as he was grown enough to carry the wood for the sacrifice up the mountain, as we see in Genesis chapter 22, verse 6, where it says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and laid it upon Isaac his son. He put it on his back and said, Go ahead, you're a mule, carry this up the hill. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went, both of them together. The next significant event that is recorded is the death of Sarah at age 127, 37 years after she gave birth to Isaac. The amount of wood sufficient to offer a man in sacrifice must have been considerable. So Isaac must have been old enough to carry such an amount. One, and I looked this up this afternoon, one popular recipe found on the internet for cooking a whole 60-pound pig calls for five bundles of hardwood in addition to a bag of hard coal. The size of their bundle is not specified, but the ones which we purchase from stores for other reasons not to cook pig typically weigh about 20 pounds. Isaac indubitably carried close to his own weight in wood up that mountain. Compare continues, 
Abraham started out with Isaac for the place where he was to offer up the sacrifice, going cheerfully, not in the awful grief of a father about to not only witness, but even to cause the death of his beloved son. He went in the serene confidence of one who knew that his God was always faithful. It records, Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he, meaning Isaac, said, Behold, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, Yahweh will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. The sacrifice of Isaac foreshadows the ultimate sacrifice of Christ in many ways. They were both sacrificed on a hill or mountaintop in the same area. And in fact, Moriah may have been the very mount where the temple was built seven or eight hundred years later in the days of Solomon on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. And they both carried to the respective sites of their sacrifice their own wood, which was to be the method of their sacrifice. albeit in different ways. Furthermore, while Yahweh did indeed provide a lamb or a ram to replace Isaac, the sacrifice of Christ was later depicted as that of the Lamb of God dying on behalf of Isaac's descendants. As he proceeds, Compare will explain this, but for now he can only conjecture what Abraham may have been thinking at this time. Possibly his confidence might have been based in part upon the conviction that if Yahweh did permit the death of Isaac, he would resurrect him so that the promises would be fulfilled through Isaac. Remember that resurrection is a basic part of Christianity. By his own statement, Abraham also was calmly certain that Yahweh would intervene providing a lamb for the sacrifice to be offered in place of Isaac, so that by the death of lamb in his place, Isaac could be scared. Isaac could be spared. I'm sorry. This again is the very essence of Christianity. In John 1.29, Yahshua is called the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In Revelation 13.8, Yahshua is called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Genesis chapter 22 tells how Abraham's faith was justified. Yahweh stopped him before any harm could come to Isaac and provide a ram caught in a nearby thicket for the sacrifice. This incident of Abraham and Isaac was written in the book of Genesis by Moses. Do you think Moses did not know the significance of what he had written? <clears throat> Not at all. The Bible itself tells us Moses was a Christian. Does that surprise you? Hebrews chapter 11 verses 24 through 26 records, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. Certainly you cannot have faith in something you have never heard of. 
It is clear Moses knew the significance of the symbolism in the Old Testament rituals, which he told the people of Israel to use. Now here Compare takes advantage of what is essentially a misunderstanding of the translators. So here we have another critical note by Clifton Emmeheiser. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I have frogs in my throat. The plagues of Egypt, I guess. Clifton worded his notes in such a manner because his notes were appended in one body to the end of the publication. And he wrote, Comparet also makes the statement, Not at all. The Bible tells us, the Bible itself tells us Moses was a Christian. Does that surprise you? Hebrews 11:24 through 26 records, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater war riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Clifton says in response, this passage at Hebrews chapter 11 verses 24 through 26 is an obvious mistranslation. Here the word Christ is derived from the anointed, and that's not quite right, but it's close enough. And it is simply saying that Moses would rather suffer the affliction of his people than to live in Pharaoh's house. William Fink, and these are Clifton's words, translates this passage correctly. By faith Moses, becoming full-grown, refused to be called a son of the daughter of Pharaoh, rather preferring to be mistreated with the people of Yahweh than to have the temporary rewards of error, having esteemed the reproach of the anointed greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, since he had regard for the reward. And Clifton makes a parenthetical note, anointed equals Israelite people. And that's absolutely true. Clifton, of course, transcribe this paper probably, if I remember correctly, while Gene Snyder was still alive, because Gene and Clifton, Gene <clears throat> had some um, unrighteous grievance towards Clifton and refused to turn over to him her computer files. I remember this quite well. And Clifton went ahead and scanned the entire book and edited it and cleaned it up himself so that he could print it, so that he could publish it electronically. Because Kingdom Identity Ministries doesn't publish any of the books it, books it sells electronically. And I personally think that's a grave error. I think Kingdom Identity Ministries should have already, long ago, published all of its books electronically and freely. And... Christian identity would probably be further along today. Some people would rather make money, I guess, than share their truths freely. That's always been a source of disappointment to me. I don't think I've ever expressed it in a podcast before, but now you have it. My philosophy is to distribute everything I write freely, even if I sell books with the same material. That's the way it should be in Christian in Christianity, in Christian identity especially, because we claim to be true Christians. This was the last of Clifton's critical notes for this sermon, and Clifton had my translation 
long before the Christogenian New Testament was ever published, thanks to our friend David Gray, and that's another story. <clears throat> but there is still a lot of material remaining to present in this sermon. However, we must state that the phrase, Ho Christus, can be interpreted either as the Christ, where we are certain that it stands as the title for Yahshua himself, or as the anointed, where it stands as a title for the whole body of the people of Yahweh collectively, his anointed ones. And we see that usage in the Old Testament on several occasions. Here in Hebrews chapter 11, it clearly refers to the people, as Paul uses it to refer to the people of God he had mentioned immediately beforehand. The reproach of the anointed in verse 26 is simply another way to describe the affliction with the people of God to which he had referred in verse 25. Returning to Compare, <coughs> Christianity is the central theme of the Old Testament, especially in the writings of Moses and Isaiah. The deepest religious truths therein are expressed symbolically in the sacrifices and rituals. Since they are not explained in words of one syllable for the benefit of the lazy, the uninterested, and the shallow, comparate demeaning those who refuse to actually study the scripture, they have not been perceived by churchmen, whom he labels here as lazy, uninterested, and shallow, whose religion never gets beyond mere emotionalism, these are the men who tell us Yahweh was mistaken in the Old Testament, that his plan would not work, because men in their wickedness were stronger than Yahweh. They would not let him carry out his plans. So he had to abandon all this and start over again in the New Testament. Isn't that an aspiring religion? They call themselves New Testament Christians, but they either won't read or won't believe the New Testament either. Of course, Compare refers to the professional clergy, which promotes the idea that God would replace his people rather than keep his promises. Likewise, they are replacing us today, in spite of the fact that the American Constitution was written exclusively for one people, the founders and their posterity. So our clergymen replaced our race in their teachings on the Bible, and now they are doing it again in modern history. And on both occasions, the satanic Jews are the beneficiaries. Continuing with Compare. In this same New Testament, Yahshua, to whom these Jews render lip service, calls their attention to Christianity in the writings of Moses. In John chapter 5, he twice called attention of the Jews to this fact, saying, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and it is they which testify of me. The earliest book of the New Testament, Matthew, was not written, was not written until ten years after Christ spoke, so the scriptures he told them to read were necessarily those of the Old Testament and we would agree on everything there except for the reference to 10 years because we really can't be that certain. Yahshua told them, There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. 
For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Can you be a New Testament Christian if you won't believe Yahshua's own words? And in part one of this series, we asked and we answered the question, what is a Catholic? There we esteem to have proven that a true Catholic is one who accepts both Old and New Testaments in regard to himself, and therefore in accordance with the promises and covenants of God as they were originally given. A true Catholic can only be an identity Christian. Anything else falls short of and even denies the word of Yahweh God and the words of his Christ as they are found in the scriptures of both testaments. Compare continues. We find the essence of Christianity clearly symbolized in the origin of the Passover. You remember Moses had repeatedly demanded of the Pharaoh of Egypt that he let the people of Israel go, and the Pharaoh had each time refused. Despite the many miracles Moses worked, bringing down plagues upon Egypt to show his authority. So Yahweh told Moses that one more plague would be sent upon Egypt, which would surely convince Pharaoh that he should let the children of Israel go. Thus saith Yahweh, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits upon the throne, even under the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of the beasts. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how Yahweh does put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Compare says, note what this means. Because of the stubborn wickedness of the Egyptians, the death penalty was to come upon them. Yet the children of Israel, who were also imperfect and sinful, were to escape this penalty. There was only one way in which they could be spared, by the ritual of the Passover. This Passover certainly symbolizes Christianity as the way of salvation from death. And it was indeed employed in that manner, the blood of the Lamb, as an allegory in the Revelation. Speaking of the future, the future from the time of Christ, when he gave the revelation to John. And we may add that just as the Pharaoh was stubborn, regardless of the plagues brought upon his people, we too are stubborn and frequently we remain in our sin, regardless of the plagues which it causes both ourselves and our people. So in that manner Pharaoh serves as a type for us all. In any case, only the blood of the Lamb can save us. Compare continues his own comparison. The instructions for this ritual were given in Exodus chapter 12. In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole kahal, Kahal being the Hebrew word which means assembly. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and upon the upper door post or the lintel of the houses wherein they shall eat. 
and they shall eat the flesh in the night, roasted with fire, and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it for a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance for ever. This symbolized Yahshua giving his life to save those who believe in him. This is Compare's conclusion. And it's fine. This festival was always kept in the Hebrew month of Nisan. This meal gave the Israelites strength for their forced march, that night and all the next day, leaving Egypt in the Exodus. The lamb's blood had to be placed outside the door on the two doorposts and a lintel above the front door of each house. Although they were cruelly mistreated slaves in the land of their enemies, they could not eat the Passover supper in secret. Salvation from death came only to those who publicly proclaimed their faith that the blood of the lamb would save them. Now Passover approaches, and people often wonder when to celebrate it. There was a short article at Christogenia entitled, Dating the Passover, and, and it is clear that the Hebrew calendar, being based on the natural phases of agriculture, another sign that these people were not Jews, of course, because Jews have never practiced agriculture, the first day of the year must have been the first day of spring which is the vernal equinox. So it is quite apparent that Passover, being the 14th day of the year, should be celebrated each year beginning with the evening of April 2nd on our calendar. And that may be as close as we can come from what we could read in Scripture. Returning to Compare. This is clearly New Testament Christianity. First, the necessity for public confession of faith in the blood of the Lamb. In Matthew chapter 10, Yahshua says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Also, read Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. In, and that's just a Luke's portrayal of the same words. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul reminds us that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Yahshua the Christ, and shalt believe in thine heart that Yahweh has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Paul speaking to Romans and not to squat monsters or Negroes. We do not believe that a public confession of Christ is necessary for salvation, since all Israel shall be saved, and much of Israel in history had never even had a chance to hear the gospel of Christ. However, what Christ is telling us in that passage is that those of Israel who confess Christ before men will have a greater commendation or reward for having done so. And what Paul is telling us is that in the profession of Christ 
is an indication of our salvation. Returning again to Compare, eating the flesh of the lamb to gain strength for the great effort of the exodus from the world and evil into salvation and the kingdom of Yahweh is again clear Christian symbolism. In John chapter 6, Yahshua says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world, or the society would be a more accurate translation. <coughs> the cosmos, the arrangement of the oikumene, which is the living space of the Romans and Greeks and related tribes, not squat monsters and Negroes. In Revelation chapter 7 we read of the children of Israel scattered among the nations. These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Why did they come out of tribulation? Because they are the Israelites who 700 years before had gone into tribulation. Then in Revelation chapter 12, in reference to Satan, and in a prophecy which applies to this very day, we read of those same children of Israel, and they overcame him, they overcame Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, they overcame the Jew by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death, because loving Christ we seek, we forsake our own lives for the sake of our brethren. We seek the edification of our people and dedicate ourselves to our people, not to Birkenstocks and breaks and mansions on the beach in Destin. I'm sorry, I can't help but poke fun at some frauds and charlatans. Perhaps some of you are wondering about the command in Exodus chapter 12, verse 24. Back to Compare. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. Are we violating Yahweh's law when we do not celebrate Passover as such today? And I have to um, make a rather impromptu note because I really did mean to type this in this afternoon. Where it says forever with these ordinances in scripture if we examine the book of evident uh, the, the book of exodus and the promises and the laws passed down to the children of Israel from Exodus chapter 19 forward where it says forever forever is dependent upon the obedience of the children of Israel so forever in these laws actually has a condition. It's conditional. When the children of Israel stopped being obedient, they were divorced by Yahweh and forever ended because the kingdom ended. Compare comes close to that explanation here. 
He says, no, you will note that the Passover ritual was an ordinance. All the religious rituals were stated as ordinances. There are four grades of divine law. The commandments, which are the greatest rules governing man's relation to his God. The statutes, which are the rules for governing the nation, including many of the rules for man's relation to his fellow man. The judgments, which are the rules telling the judges how to decide cases between man and man. And the ordinances, which are the rules for the religious rituals and ceremonies. The commandments, statutes, and the judgments are the rules which are forever necessary for a good life in this world, and they are still in force. Well, no, they are not still in force, because we are not stoning sodomites and race mixers. So they are not still in force. I'm sorry. Compare just kind of got that one wrong. The ordinances governed only the religious ceremonies and rituals, and all of these were symbolic of the coming Savior and Redeemer, Yahshua. And here we must disagree with Compare once again in some degree. The rules for governing the nation were also done away with, as we read in Hosea chapter 3. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. Afterwards shall the children of Israel return, and seek Yahweh their God, and David their king, and shall fear Yahweh and his goodness in the later days. This prophecy referred to the state of the children of Israel in their captivity. All of the things which they would do without were symbols, the symbols of kingly and priestly authority, which were necessary for governing the nation. However, we read in Isaiah chapter 7, that within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it shall not be a people. Part of the punishment of the children of Israel is that they would not be not again be ruled righteously until the coming of Christ. But they would be subject to beast empires, beast governments. We are still subject to beast governments to this very day. Many of the laws which made them a visibly distinct nation were never imposed by Christ or the Apostles because they were explicitly for the Old Kingdom forever ended. Instead, Christians were told only that they must keep the commandments if they sought to please Christ. Compare continues. Since he had not come in Old Testament times, all the symbolism of the rituals looked to the future. But after Yahshua had actually come, we cannot go on proclaiming our faith that our Redeemer has not yet come, but will come in the future. That would be a rejection of Yahshua who has already come. Therefore, only the form of the ceremony, not its eternal truth, is changed to a new form from the Last Supper or Communion to a new form, the Last Supper or Communion, which proclaims our faith in a Redeemer who has already come. 
it is still the same eternal truth about the same Redeemer. It does not reject any of the truth implied in the Passover. It merely proclaims this as already accomplished. And we do not understand communion the way that the denominational churches understand it. We cannot. Paul said that whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you declare the death of the prince until he comes. Whenever you eat this bread or drink from this cup was said in the very same passage where he had asked the Corinthians, don't you have houses in which to eat and to drink? We practice communion not in church but every time we consume a meal with our loved ones that is communion and we do it in the memory of our Redeemer. Compare continues. The Passover was on the 14th day of the Hebrew month Nisan. The Passover lambs were killed and dressed in the afternoon ready for that evening's Passover supper. The King James Bible wrongly translates this as in the evening. But the Hebrew said between the evenings, which meant between the time when the sun first started towards sunset at noon and the time when it is finished going down. Yahshua was crucified soon after noon and he died about 3 p.m. The Bible says about the ninth hour. The Hebrew divided the night into watches and the day into 12 hours beginning at sunrise, which came about 6 a.m. at that time of the year. So the ninth hour was 3 p.m. Yahshua died right in the middle of the period when the Passover lambs were being killed, emphasizing the fact that he was our Passover. It is recorded in John chapter 1 that John the Baptist, looking upon Jesus as he walked, said, Behold the Lamb of God. Later, Paul of Tarsus wrote to the Corinthians, whom he had also explained were indeed descended from the dispersed tribes of Israel. To purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, therefore we must keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here Compare continues in regards to the leaven. The next day, the fifteenth day of Nisan, began the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We find this in Leviticus chapter, chapter 23, verses 6 through 8. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread unto Yahweh. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have a convocation. Ye shall not do any servile work therein. But ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto Yahweh seven days. In the seventh day is a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. He says, like all the other festivals and rituals of the Old Testament, this feast of the unleavened bread is symbolic of Yahshua and his ministry. Then he goes on to say that leaven was a symbol of sin. Its fermentation being perhaps thought of as similar to putrefaction. The way just a little leaven introduced into the dough would soon spread through it all. 
Hence we find Yahshua warning his disciples in Matthew chapter 16 to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Since Yahshua was the bread of life, as he explained in John chapter 6, the fact that Yahshua has saved us by his death in our place on the cross, followed by the fact that our lives are thereafter sustained by his power, is symbolized by the Passover, followed by the feast of the unleavened bread. Yahshua's perfection, free from all sin, is symbolized by the use of unleavened bread. And we must say that Paul had contrasted leaven to malice and wickedness. He equated leaven to malice and wickedness, but contrasted it to the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We would think that leaven represented lies and false doctrines, as well as it does sin. He continues with the next feast on the Christian calendar. Compare continues. The third of the spring festivals, first fruits, came before the end of unleavened bread. On the first day after the Sabbath following the Passover was the first fruits festival. It is mentioned in many places, Exodus chapter 23, chapter 34, Leviticus chapter 23, Numbers chapter 18, Deuteronomy chapters 18 and 26. And the entire ritual is given in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 to 11. And Compare reads that here. And it shall be, when thou art come unto the land which Yahweh thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and possessest it, and dwellest therein, that thou shalt take of the first of all the fruits of the earth, which thou shalt bring out of thy land that Yahweh thy God gives thee, and thou shalt put it in a basket, and shalt go unto the place which Yahweh thy God shall choose to place his name there. And thou shalt go unto the priest that shall be in those days, and say unto him, I profess this day unto Yahweh thy God, that I am come unto the country which Yahweh swore unto our fathers for to give to us. And the priest shall take the basket out of thine hand, and set it down before the altar of Yahweh thy God. And we could see in the context of these instructions that the Levitical Feast of First Fruits has no place since the destruction of the temple because it's actually codified into the law. It's glued to the fabric of the Old Kingdom and cannot be practiced separate from it. Just like the commandment to wear blue threads on the corners of your clothing on the extremities of your clothing. And the priest shall take the basket out of thine hand, and set it down before the altar of Yahweh thy God. And thou shalt speak and say before Yahweh thy God, A Syrian, ready to perish, was my father. And he went down into Egypt, and sojourned there with the few, and became there a great nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians evil entreated us, and afflicted us, and laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried unto Yahweh, God of our fathers, Yahweh heard our voice, and looked on our affliction, and our labor, and our oppression. And Yahweh brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and with an outstretched arm, and with great terribleness, with great awe and with signs and with wonders. And he has brought us into this place and has given us this land, even a land that flows with milk and honey. 
And now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which thou, O Yahweh, hast given me. So the Feast of First Fruits was a commemoration of the history of the people. If you don't commemorate your history, you become disconnected with your past and subverted by the Jews. That's what we see today all around us. This passage, which Compare cites, where it says in Deuteronomy chapter 26 that a Syrian ready to perish was my father, in reference to Jacob, supports our contention that there is a scribal error of Edom for Aram or Syrian in Deuteronomy 23.7, which we would read to say, Thou shalt not abhor a Syrian, for he is thy brother. Thou shalt not abhor an Egyptian, because thou wast a stranger in his land. We would assert that the one passage certainly is a parallel to the other. Compare continues to discuss the Feast of First Fruits, which in the New Testament is called Pentecost. The people in general have never shown any ability to understand the deeper truths of religion. Only a very few upon whom rests the Spirit of Yahweh have ever understood. Therefore, to keep the rituals in the mind of the people, Moses had to give a simplified explanation within a range of comprehension of the average man. Consequently, he tied in the festival of first fruits with the idea of expressing gratitude to Yahweh for the gift, his gift of the promised land. But the promised land of Canaan was only for this world, a temporary value. What was the true promised land, the one which was eternal? It must necessarily be resurrection and continued life after the death of this fallen body. Therefore, that which is the true symbolism of the festival of the first fruits, and that is the fulfillment which Yahshua gave it. On the morning after the Sabbaths, Yahshua was resurrected to demonstrate the reality of the redemption he had given us, and this was on the exact day of the festival of the first fruits. He always fulfilled the great reality on the exact day of the festival which symbolized that reality. The assertion which Compare makes here is indeed supported by Scripture. One example is in Hebrews chapter 11 where Paul wrote in reference to the Old Testament saints, and he said, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they, say, they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, so while they themselves lived in Palestine, that was clearly not the country they sought. Continuing with Compare, Yahshua carried out the symbolism of the first fruits to the exact letter. Leviticus chapter 23 verses 10 and 11 command, The first fruits offering shall be a sheaf of grain, a number of stalks, each with its head containing many individual grains, and the priest shall take the sheaf and wave it. They were to publicly display it before Yahweh. When Yahshua was resurrected, he did not rise alone. 
Matthew chapter 27 verses 52 and 53 tell us, The graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves, after his resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Thus he fulfilled the symbolism of the wave sheaf, containing many individual grains, by resurrecting many persons when he arose as the first fruits from the dead and making public display of his victory over death. Those who scoff at Christianity belittle such testimonies. However, there were so many witnesses, men who were willing to die rather than to deny what they had seen, that soon the whole world, or society, would be Christian. To deny this is to rebuke one's own fathers, who knew better than to deny it. Compare continues, This is the correct interpretation of the symbolism that is shown by Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ's at his coming. The firstfruits festival came at the time of the barley harvest, for the barley harvest ripened several weeks before the wheat. Now the scripture is sometimes confusing in this regard. In Exodus chapter 34 we read, And thou shalt observe the feast of weeks, of the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end, which is concurrent with the feast of tabernacles. There is only one feast explicitly called first fruits, and therefore that is the first fruits of the wheat harvest. The time of first fruits, the earlier time of first fruits, is during the feast of unleavened bread, as Compre said for himself here, as, as Compre had said previously here. But it is not called a feast by itself. I'm sorry, I'm still typing. But as Compre shall explain, there is an offering of first fruits commanded 50 days before the Pentecost or Feast of Weeks. So he continues and he says, the offering of the first fruits at the temple was of only a small amount, a mere token as a pledge that when the major harvest, that of the wheat, was brought in, the full tithe of the grain harvest would be brought to the temple. This was to be done at what the Bible calls the Feast of Weeks, and which the churchmen, with the usual specialist delight in developing a jargon of their own, have chosen to call Pentecost. Now, we do not agree with that, because in all of the oldest Greek manuscripts, the apostles called it Pentecost. It was on the day after the completion of seven weeks that it was celebrated. Compare continues, Yahshua knew and respected the symbolism involved here. 
Pentecoste is actually 50 in Greek. That's why the day is called Pentecost. It's the 50th day. Yahshua knew and respected the symbolism involved here. At first fruits, he did not bring all the magnificent gifts he would give to his followers. He brought just a token resurrection of a few persons to show how great would be his eventual gift to men. Perhaps some of them will get mansions on the beach in Destin and Birkenstock clown shoes. However, men must live out their lives under all the usual circumstances of this world before they reach the stage of death and resurrection. So they need another gift before that time. What they need to bring them triumphantly through life is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So we must understand that those resurrected with Christ were represented by the first fruits of Leviticus chapter 23 verse 10 which Compare shall, exp shall explain below and has already explained. In that manner he correctly asserts that the first fruits offering during the Feast of Unleavened Bread stands as an allegory of the resurrection of the saints described in Matthew chapter 27. However, the gathering of the wheat began at the first Christian Pentecost when the apostles received the Holy Spirit and began to spread the gospel. The Feast of Weeks was the first wheat harvest, the first fruits of the wheat, and that was called by the Greek word Pentecost in the New Testament. While there is not quite enough information in Scripture to understand the entire agricultural system of the Old Kingdom, it is also certain that the Feast of Tabernacles was, the, was a feast of the final harvest of the year, which is called ingathering in certain Scriptures, as we have already seen. Compare continues to speak of the significance of Pentecost. Yahshua had promised them this gift in John chapter 14. And I will pray to Father, and he shall give to you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwells in you and shall be in you. And I will not leave you comfortless. Now the Greek word is actually fatherless there. Orphanizo is the verb. It comes to give us our word orphan. It's actually fatherless. The King James translators actually wanted, seem to have wanted to make the connection between the comforter and the idea of being left comfortless. But the truth is that in that same passage in John, a little further on, Christ says, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you, and that's where Compare ends his quote here, actually. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Christ is admitting or asserting that he is that other comforter. It's just Yahweh God in another form as the Holy Spirit. Yahweh God was in the form of Yahshua Christ. At the same time, he was in the form of the Father in Heaven, and he would come in another form. So Christ calls it another comforter, but at the same time says, I will come to you, meaning that he is that comforter. The King James made the connection of comforter to 
comfortless, they shouldn't have done that. The word literally means fatherless because Yahshua is saying that when he dies, he is the father leaving his people. I will not leave you fatherless. I will come to you. So, Compare continues, so at the time of first fruits, Yahshua demonstrated the reality of his gift of resurrection by bringing several of the dead to life. It was not yet time for actual resurrection to come to everyone, so this was just a token given in pledge of the final harvest. With this proof, everyone could wait in serene confidence for what was yet to come. The rest of the harvest for man was to be demonstrated in its own good time at the Feast of Weeks. Now, the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of First Fruits were actually one and the same, as we have seen in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 22. But there was a separate offering, as Compare has explained, a separate offering of first fruits during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is fully apparent in Scripture that there are three solemn feasts where the children of Israel were to gather at the temple each year. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before Yahweh thy God in the place which he shall choose, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and in the Feast of Weeks, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before Yahweh empty. The Feast of Weeks was called as much because it consisted of seven weeks, which in the New Testament period was simply called Pentecost, which referred to the 50th day from Passover. So the New American Standard Bible correctly renders Numbers chapter 28 verse 26 to read, Also, on the day of the first fruits, when you present a new grain offering to the Lord in your Feast of Weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. So they're equated right there, the day of first fruits with the Feast of Weeks. That's the day of Pentecost. But that doesn't detract from the fact that there was a separate offering. As Compare had said before, there was a first fruits offering seven weeks before Pentecost, where he cited Leviticus chapter 23, verses 10 and 11, which state, The first fruits offering shall be a sheaf of grain, a number of stalks, each with its head containing many individual grains. And the priest shall take the sheaf and wave it. Now he continues discussing further from that same chapter of Leviticus. I should say he continues his discussion further from that same chapter of Leviticus. I'm editing a little as I speak. I always do that today. I'm probably in need of a little more editing than usual. The Feast of Weeks was celebrated on the 50th day after First Fruits, as specified in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 through 21. Now, he had already described the first offering of First Fruits in Leviticus 23, verse 10, and that was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the wave offering, Seven Sabbaths shall be complete, and even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath ye shall number 
fifty days, and ye shall offer a new meal offering unto Yahweh. Ye shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenths de- of two tenth deals. A deal was a unit of measure, probably sort of like a bushel. And they shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits unto Yahweh. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock and two rams. They shall be for a burnt offering unto Yahweh, with their meal offering and their drink offerings, even an offering made by fire of savor unto Yahweh. Then ye shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering, and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before Yahweh. With the two lambs they shall be holy to Yahweh for the priest. And ye shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall do no servile work therein. It shall be a statue forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. And this seems to indicate that the day of Pentecost was actually seven weeks after the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would make it eight weeks after Passover. I'm sorry. So there are two sets of first fruits. The one immediately after the feast or immediately after the feast of unleavened bread or on the last day of that feast and and another 50 days later which was the first fruits of the wheat this can be confusing and i myself have certainly been confused on this topic in the past copyright did well however to examine these feasts and realize the allegories they represent in relation to the events of the ministry of christ So he continues, Note here some contrasts, which are intended to make clear the different things symbolized. In the Feast of the First Fruits, the symbolism was that of Yahshua resurrected as the first fruits from the dead. Since leaven symbolizes sin, there could be not any leaven in the offerings made on the day of first fruits. Now we would not call this the Feast of the First Fruits. The Feast of the First Fruits is clearly the Feast of Weeks or Day of Pentecost. We would call this the first offering of first fruits, which is during or at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He Compre says, along with the sheaf of barley, the Israelite was to offer a he lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering, which symbolized Yahshua offering to pay the penalty of our sins. There was also to be an offering of fine flour mingled with oil, but not baked into a leavened loaf. Nor could any leaven be included in the offering, as first fruits must symbolize Yahshua who is without sin. But the Feast of Weeks, also called Pentecost, does not directly represent Yahshua. It symbolizes the true church and Yahshua's gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. And of course, where Compare says true church, from his many other writings, we know that he correctly refers to the body of the people of Israel and not to the beast church organization in Rome. Even the very best of men have some sins. Continuing with Compare. Even when called by Yahshua to be part of his church. Therefore the wave loaves which symbolized the church were made with leaven. Note also that at the Feast of the First Fruits, 
there was the offering of a sheaf of stalks of barley, each stalk having its head containing many individual grains. This symbolizing the many individuals to whom Yahshua brings the gift of life and resurrection. With the call to form his church, all the believers become a part of one body, the church. As Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, saying, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for, for we are all partakers of that one bread. I would just say that Paul told them to do that at home, not in church. The people are the church, and they should eat and drink at home. Therefore, the offering at the Feast of Weeks is no longer a sheaf containing a multitude of individual grains, but of the wave loaves symbolizing the many believers having now become one church. And surely Comparé intends to describe many believers from out of the greater number of the dispersed children of Israel, not from Negroes and squat monsters. Now we will conclude with his final remarks on these feasts. In fulfillment of this, at the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, next following the crucifixion, the disciples were waiting in Jerusalem in obedience to Yahshua's promise and command in Luke chapter 24, verse 49. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem, and until ye be endued with power from on high. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 promises, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses upon me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Compare says, At the Feast of Weeks, the Holy Spirit came upon them, as set forth in detail in Acts chapter 2, which began the work of the church, men united in their fellowship as parts of the mystic body of Christ. I wouldn't say it was a mystic body of Christ. It's a very literal body of Christ. It's genetic Israelites, or genetic white people. He concludes, Remember, this was but the fulfillment of the promise symbolized in the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament. In the end, it becomes evident that the entire organization of the Old Testament ceremonies and rituals looked forward to Christ and were imposed with the understanding that the people themselves would ultimately fail so that we know with all certainty that God alone is perfect. We shall discuss this and other aspects of Christianity in the Old Testament when we return with Bertrand Comparé's sermon next week. We might need two more of these evenings to complete the sermon. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.